Good morning, everyone. Glad to be here uh, outside. It's it's nice to worship outside. I'm going to do my best to keep this uh, a little bit shorter today. Once I realized that we would be outside, I actually did cut uh, the sermon um, in half. And that's because Psalm 107 is unique. Psalms 107 is unique because it's, uh, it's really divided into two portions of psalmic literature. Verses 1 through 32 is a thanksgiving psalm. It's an imperative thanksgiving psalm, which means that the writer is really commanding God's people to do something. In this case, it's, it's praise your Redeemer. Verses 33 through 42 is more of a wisdom psalm. We're going to ditch the wisdom psalm for the sermon for the sake of being outside because I think that once I started, it became a sermon in itself. And then once I started putting those two things together, it became a third sermon. And as much as I know you would love to hear me preach for that long, I don't think wisdom dictates it. So you're going to get one sermon this morning, uh, verses 1 through 32. Now, it's no surprise to us that mankind is in a fallen state, that we have been wholly affected by sin in our own hearts and sin around us. It's a doctrine that we call the fall. Our confession of faith says this, chapter six, paragraph two, our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness. So there was an original state that they fell from because of sin. And we in them whereby death came upon all people, all becoming dead in sin. And listen, holy, not holy as in God is holy, but completely wholly defiled in all the faculties in parts of the soul and body. There's nothing about you at all that sin hasn't affected. Nothing. Wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of the soul and body. Well, that's our baseline, church. We are a people that are off kilter. Our physical and mental and emotional senses are set askew because of sin. We do not operate as we are designed to originally operate. We were designed to enjoy our God. We were, we, were, we were made to enjoy a perfectly eternal and loving God who wanted to be with us. That's what we were made for. That's good. But we no longer operate that way. We are supposed to love him with all of our hearts and minds and our soul and our strength. What Psalm 107 does really well is it causes us to reposition ourselves to our proper function, a function that the world is desperately looking for. Now, my favorite type of music, the genre is called singer-songwriter. That's why I play guitar. A man with a guitar and something to say. Give me a a beautiful, thoughtful story and a melody, and I'm happy. I regularly search the depths of the Spotify algorithm, looking for new, beautiful songs 
by singer-songwriters. One time I, I heard a song that just captured the fall, in my opinion, so beautifully, different than I've ever heard before. It's a song called Whispers by a band called Passenger. I'm not recommending the song, but I want to bring our attention to the lyrics. He says, this is unbelievable. Listen to these words. Well, I have opened eyes and an open door, but I don't know what I'm searching for. I should know by now. I have a big old heart. This I know for sure, but I don't know what my love is for. I should know by now. Will I wait in line so I can wait some more till I can't remember what I came here for, but I can't leave now because I have a light that shines and a love that's pure, but I don't know what to use them for. I should know by now. Then he says, well, I've spent my money. I've lost my friends and I've broke my mobile phone. 3 a.m. and I've indulged too much. That's my own lyric in there. And I'm dancing on my own. Taxi cabs are no longer stopping and I don't know my way home. It's hard to find a reason when all you have is doubts. It's hard to see inside yourself when you can't see your way out. It's hard to find an answer when the questions just won't come out. And here's the end of the song. Maybe here's the hope, right? It's not what we're going to get. He says, yelling. Everyone's filling me up with noise. I don't know what they're talking about. You see, all I need is a whisper in a world that only shouts. How can you hear that and not think like me, Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has put eternity into the hearts of men. Yet, so that they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This, my friends, this song whispers, is, in my opinion, the cry of the unredeemed. The unredeemed do not know the mercy of God found in the cross of Christ. To a spiritually dead world, the cross is foolishness. But to the redeemed, it's more beautiful than anything. Amen? Amen. Psalm 107 is the song of the redeemed. It's the praise that only the redeemed know. It's the hymn that only the redeemed can speak. This morning, let's look together at Psalm 107 and give thanks to our Redeemer. Starting in verse 1, we read, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Why should only the redeemed say so? Because in the truest sense of the matter, only the redeemed of the Lord can say so. The most beautiful act in all of human history is acknowledged by only a few of us. Ever considered that? That's unbelievable. Passenger saying, he says, everyone's filling me up with noise. I don't know what they're talking about. Everyone is shouting. Everyone has their own message. It's a world full of people talking over one another. Yet, 
As we're told here, there is a choir in unison. Somewhere in the distance, rising above the confusion of the world. Who is this choir? Well, we read, we continue to read, it is those whom God has redeemed from trouble. Verse 3, and he has gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and the south. The choir is the redeemed of the Lord church, gathered in by the hand of God, by his own protection, a testimony to his glorious redemptive power, lifted up and set apart from the white noise and confusion of peoples and prideful nations. Here is the glory of the Lord, more impressive than clusters of galaxies in the universe, more impressive than the yawn of a newborn baby. It is the redeemed of the Lord singing and praising God in unison. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, they sing. His steadfast love endures forever. The ESV reads really well and smoothly. I like what the Hebrew says a little better. It, says, it, it, it translates something more like this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, for the everlastingness of his loyal love, for the everlastingness of his loyal love. I love that. From the beginning of Psalm 107, we're told why God's people are to praise God. We praise because God is good and his loyal love will never, ever, never, ever, never end. Notice that first God redeems and then there's praise. He's the one that leads us home spiritually. He's the one that breaks us free from our spiritual enslavement. He is the one that cures us from spiritual sickness. He is the one that protects us in spiritual vulnerability. This is his goodness, his love is everlastingness. Amen? Amen? And knowing this to be true, and as a Reformed church, we love to know things. We love to systematize things. Knowing this to be true, and listen, even feeling in your heart that it's true, that God's, loving, God's love is everlastingness, knowing it and feeling it, it's good. But the psalmist says, that's not enough. It's not enough to know it. It's not enough to feel it. We are to say it and proclaim it and sing it together. It's funny, this psalm was written as a song. So it's a song that the Israelites would sing about why they should sing about God. Did you catch that? Did you guys hear me over here? That's really interesting, right? We should be singing about the love of God. We should be singing about the, right? Like, that's awesome. I think that we need to be reminded. We're so fickle. God is good. Let's sing his praise. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. This morning, as we work through this psalm, we're going to go on what I, what I think is a fun adventure and we're going to witness the glorious salvific work of God towards his chosen people. Following this opening, these three verses, I'm going to call them four episodes, like a docu-series about the everlasting loyal love of God towards his redeemed. And each of these episodes, four episodes, are going to reference directly verse two about how he has redeemed his people 
from trouble. So let's begin. Episode one, spiritual wanderers. Verse four, some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Our episode opens with a desert scene. Sand dunes as far as the eye can see. A bright hot sun is burning everything it touches. And a pack of lost wanderers. They are hungry. They're thirsty. And we're told that their inner vitality is fainting. They are dying. And with their last drops of energy, what do they do? They're looking for a home, a city to dwell in. They stagger around and they wander, but there's no road to follow. Every direction just looks the same. It's only barren and death is everywhere they turn. Now this could have brought images to the Israelites of the, uh, of the Israelites escaping Egypt in the great Exodus, crossing um, the Red Sea and being in the wilderness. They're there because of their sin and their stubbornness. And frankly, they're there because of their faithlessness. And after walking in circles and losing all hope, they did what they should have done from the beginning. They cry out to God, verse six. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Church, why does it take us so long to turn to God in our distress? Well, I believe it goes back to the doctrine of the fall. Not only are all of our faculties distorted, but our hearts for God are just dead. I can believe that man is sinful and deprived. What I know of my own heart points everything that the Bible has to say to it as being true. But what adds sorrow to my understanding is our lack of love for our creator. Why do we doubt? Pastor Tim preached last week. The heavens declare the glory of God. Why do we have this mentality, church? I will only go to God if I can't figure it out for myself. Can anyone else relate to me on this? We wander in deserts until our last hope. And then, and only then, do we cry out to God. I remember wrestling with this idea of atheism, humanistic philosophies in high school before the Lord's uh, redeemed me from the wild wasteland. When I heard the gospel and God's timing, there was nothing else for me but to believe in the cross of Christ. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. So what does God do once he hears the cries of his people? Verse seven, he led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Notice the juxtaposition of men walking and wandering in circles to the perfect leading of our God. A straight path to a desired city, a city of permanence, a city of refuge. And God's word word reveals that the straight path is found in the Redeemer himself. Turn to the Gospel of John chapter 14, please. This records a an interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus tells his disciples that he has to leave and they cannot follow him. He tells Peter that he's going to deny Jesus. 
and he speaks of a home for his redeemed people. Starting in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. This is Christ speaking. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you will also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus has come to the earth to be a redeemer so that he can bring the wanderer home. Verse 8 tells us, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, back in 107, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And here's where we get to the root of the psalm, I believe. If there's any question, if the psalm is about physical redemption or spiritual redemption, the psalmist now shows his hand. This psalm is not primarily about people being saved from physical harm and danger. What is being considered is something much more important than a hungry belly. It's about starving souls, lost souls in the wilderness, in the wastelands with no home, souls thirsting and fainting, souls that cry out to God, and he responds without delay. God responds, and Jesus takes them the straight way home. But not just to any homeland, we learn from Christ. He doesn't just bring them to any random city to dwell in. No, he goes and makes a way for us to be at home with him. He wants us to be with him, according to John 14. And then he fills the hungry soul with good things. Notice that. He fills the hungry soul with good things. I think about the wedding feast of Cana here. Jesus' first miracle. Jesus doesn't just provide any old wine for the wedding. When they're all out, he goes and he brings the best wine for the wedding. When God provides, he provides the best Which means to me, when we get to heaven and we're sitting at the table of the Lord, we will not be passing around boxed wine. We will have the best of the very best from the hand of our God. Oh, give thanks to him for he is good. And the first episode begins with a barren wasteland with no hope. And it ends with a banquet in the house of God and a feast. Episode two. Spiritual prisoners. Verse 10 says, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Our second episode Opens very different from the first. Instead of a bright, blinding sunlight, we have darkness. The darkness of a prison cell. 
Maybe there's a drip of water in the distance, the scurrying, squeaking of rats. And we see our prisoners chained to the walls, beat down by heavy prison labor. Their clothes are hanging off their starved frames. And we read that it's not only dark already, but if you look at the text, it says, in the darkness, there's even a shadow cast over them, making it doubly dark. And that shadow is the shadow of death. The Hebrew is awesome here. It says, it says, the darkness grim as death. ESV should have kept that. And what is worse is that there's none to help. Church, this is mankind in their sin who rebel against the words of God, who ignore the truth of God and go their own way. I've heard it said, and it's probably rightly said, that if a person is going to hell after they die, then this short life on earth is their only heaven they experience. And if that has any truth in it, then their heaven is a dark, cold cell where they wait the death penalty with no hope. Verse uh, 13 says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Sometimes crying is the most truthful prayer to God. Sometimes crying is the most truthful prayer to God. And often we must be brought low before the tears come. But when they do, we can be sure from the mouth of God here in scripture that he will listen. And he is a deliverer and he delivers them from their distress. Verse 14, he brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Praise God for the strong arm of salvation. Amen. Amen. God who leads the lost home rips apart shackles of imprisonment. Hear this, the bars of prison can hold us in, but they cannot keep God out. The bars of prison may keep us in, but they cannot keep God out. He is coming in to save us. The Redeemer calls them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And what becomes of the shadow of death? Well, nothing. What do the redeemed say to it? They say this, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? I stand in the marvelous light of my Redeemer. And verse 15 says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the bronze door and cuts in two the bars of iron. And again, God doesn't just free us for freedom's sake. We're led home from the desert to be home with him. And we're freed from prison to be united to him. There's a purpose in his saving us. And we are united with Christ and sealed by his protection forever. Episode three, spiritual sickness. Read with me in 17, verse 17. Some are fools though their, though their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near <coughs> to the gates of death. The word fools can also be translated as sick here, but either way, the ending is the same. 
The idea of foolishness in the Old Testament doesn't mean a lack of knowledge. What it means is choosing perversity over righteousness, knowingly. So our third episode is a hospital scene. A hospital floor full of sick patients suffering with affliction. They're emaciated, sickly looking, not desiring food because it only makes them more sick. They are at, as our psalmist says, the gates of death. The foolish sickness that leads to death is the prideful who choose their ways over God's ways. It's the proud, puffed up, pseudo-academic that sticks out their chest and yells at heaven, I don't need you. I can do it on my own. Science can do a lot of amazing things. It can create great medicine, but science cannot cure the sickness of the soul. And a soul sick person in a Christless world is only loss. When an unbeliever dies, church, it is only loss. There is nothing to celebrate. There is nothing to hope for. There is only loss. But the death of a Christian is only gain. Verse 19, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Oh, the goodness of God's unchanging character, church. God is a redeeming God. Amen. God is a redeeming God. Turn to him, you who are soul sick. Turn to him, you who are at the gate of death. He will hear you. He will save you. Why wait another moment? Cry to the Lord. He is a deliverer from distress. Verse 20 says, he set out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. So what heals then the sick soul, church? A simple word from God. Apparently, man is not able to be healed by medicine alone, but by the word that comes from the very mouth of God. Give thanks. You have been healed by the word of God. For he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Do you see what our psalmist is trying to do? He's leading you into a, a heart position of praise. We were once lost, but we are now found. Don't just know you've been healed. Don't just feel that you've been healed. But speak it and praise your Redeemer. Verse 22, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. What the Israelites uh, would have thought about this idea of words uh, offer sacrifice of thanksgiving is pretty cool, actually. <clears throat> they would have thought immediately of a peace offering. Uh, and there's a special type of peace offering in Leviticus 7 called a thanksgiving sacrifice. So to do this sacrifice, you would get a lamb 
or a goat and you would take it to the priest, right? Like a normal sacrifice, right? That you're probably thinking of. But you would also have to like bake a lot of bread, some of the leaven, some unleavened. Then you get some honey wafers, maybe dessert or something, right? You bring all this to the priests. The priest would all do the sacrifice. He would take the goat or the sheep. He put it on the flames and start roasting the body. And you would witness the sacrifice in front of you. The cost of the sacrifice, this dead lamb roasting on the fire. Then it starts smelling good. And then the priest would take it off and, and he'd give it back to you. And the requirement for the sacrifice of Thanksgiving is a requirement. You got to eat it. You got to eat the barbecue. You got to praise God. And then you got to eat. You got to worship your redeemer. And then you have to feast on a sacrifice that reminds you of your sin. Think of this as a worship and a meal. And those who loathed food only a few verses ago, hated it, wanted nothing to do with food, are now seen in a different situation where they're feasting on a sacrifice of thanksgiving, filling their once empty bellies with thankfulness to their God. God doesn't just heal the sick soul. He makes them alive to worship and to join in communion with him. And when we started with a room of sick and dying people, we end with a worship service. And maybe that worship service looked a little like what we're doing right now. In our final episode, episode four, spiritual vulnerability. <coughs> Verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind and which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and they were at their wits end. Our final episode, church, opens with raging waves on the ocean. Imagine lightning cracking in the background, the, the waves, uh, the sound of ra- waves rushing and crashing. Sailors on board a small vessel running across the deck to do whatever they can to secure the cracking wood of their ship. They look up to a great wave and they can no longer stand up but continue to fall over. We're told they are at their wits end. Now, not all people are sent to the sea for business. But those who are see the deeds of the Lord in his wondrous works of the deep, as the psalmist says. When God commands his creation to move, guess what? It moves. When he calls the winds to howl and whip, the waves of the sea begin to lift higher and higher. People aboard the ship are helpless and totally unable to control what's happening around them. Again and again, their vessel, their once thought of tool of safety, is thrown around like a toothpick thrown into the middle of the ocean. Their courage melts and all their expertise of sailing is itself shipwrecked as they move around uncontrollably like drunkards. It's not surprising that men can so quickly be changed when they're afraid. Maybe you have never been on a boat in a storm, but you can relate your soul to being in the midst of one the feelings of fear and vulnerability and 
things being outside of your own control. And then when you have nothing left but to surrender and cry out to God, then you pray as these sailors prayed. Verse 28, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He does it again. He made the storm be still and the ways of the sea are hushed. Then they are gathered, uh, then they are glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. I love the fourth episode. And just as he commands the winds and the waves of the sea to climb and fall in verse 25, God displays once again his sovereign control and commands these same waters to be at peace. And the peace of God, church, is unmistakable. It's unnatural to the sinful man. As Paul calls it, there's a peace of God that surpasses human understanding. That's because it's not from a human. You can't recreate the peace that comes for God because God's peace is perfect and it's timely and it's welcomed by the redeemed. God's work is evident in the chaos of the waves, but it's unmistakable in the calmness of the sea. The skies clear up, church. The sun shines on the sailors' faces. The loud crashing waves become beautifully silent and peaceful. And you know that there is a God who hears your cries and will redeem you from adversity. And we're told that they were glad to be at peace. God's bringing them home. The great pilot of our souls alone gets the glory when we arrive at those heavenly shores. Without him, we are just tossed around in a wide ocean. But when he comes... We are sure to find our way. And there, these men praise God in the assemblies of the people. Let's hear the final verses of our passage. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Who is the redeemer that commands the raging waves? Who is this redeemer that can say, be peaceful, be still, and it happens? I think most of you know where I'm going with this. Let's go there anyway. Mark chapter 4. I love this story. I know you do too. Mark chapter 4. Starting in verse 35. On that day... When evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them into the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he woke up and rebuked the wind and said, what does he say? He says, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 
And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? (coughs) And the disciples were filled with great fear. But the fear was no no longer about their, their imminent death among the waves of the sea. Their fear was now directed towards a person, a person who commands the earth and then the earth obeys him. The Redeemer is Jesus Christ's church. Oh, praise the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is good. Praise Jesus for his loyal love and his everlastingness. And God doesn't only calm their journey, but he takes them where they need to go, to the eternal stopping place, his heavenly home with himself. And when we open with a raging storm and fearful men, we now end with the exaltation of the Redeemer in God's home. What we have read this morning is no simple song about God's redemption. In my truest opinion, after studying this for a week, I believe this is the hymn of heaven. It's a song that we all will sing when we sing about God's never-ending saving love. Forever we will hear about the stories of God's redemption. Some will hear songs of redemption from the high seas. We'll hear songs of redemption from imprisonment. We'll hear songs of redemption about those who are lost in the wilderness. We'll hear songs of redemption about people being chained to their work desk in their cubicles. We'll hear songs about people who are enslaved to the gym, idolizing their physical health. We'll hear hear about deliverance from parents who have idolized their children and made them their God. We'll hear stories about uh, fill in the blank. We're going to hear it all. We're going to hear Psalm 107, episode 6, 7, 8, 9. It's going to go on and on. If you are redeemed, you have an episode in the series of God's salvation. So what are you going to do next, church? J.C. Ryle. I love me some J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle says this, church. He says this. Does the debtor in jail love the friend who unexpectedly and undeservedly pays all of his debts, supplies him with fresh capital, and takes him into partnership with himself? Does the prisoner in war love the man who, at the risk of his own life, breaks through the enemy's lines, rescues him, and sets him free? Does the drowning sailor love the man who plunges into the sea, dives after him, catches him by his hair, and by a mighty effort saves him from a watery grave? A very child can answer questions such as these. Just in the same way, and upon the same principles, a true Christian loves Jesus Christ. Love Jesus. Praise him. Give thanks to him. Say it. Proclaim it to the nations. His work is not done yet. 
And this is the one point that I want to leave you with, church. And it's the same point that the psalmist is driving in over and over and over again. Praise Jesus, you who are redeemed. If God's loyal love is everlastingness, then the praise of God's people should too be everlasting. So let's begin now. And let it grow in you in such a way that praising him is your greatest delight on earth. Let the worship of your Redeemer become more important to you. Excuse me. (coughs) Let the worship of your Redeemer become more important to you than anything else in the world. Make skipping church worship on Sunday seem more worse in your mind than skipping a chemo appointment if you're dying of cancer. Sleeplessness? Choosing sports? Going to a late party on Saturday night instead of worshiping up your, your Redeemer? Church, let it not be said of us. We are told here that we have a Redeemer and we are to worship him in the assemblies of the elders in the congregation of God's elect. Go to church and worship with those who are redeemed. The psalmist tells you to do this. God in his word tells you to do this. Praise Jesus, you who are redeemed, because God can use it for his purpose, and he will. I remind you as we end, the song of the unredeemed, everyone's filling me up with noise. I don't know what they're talking about. See, all I need is a whisper in a world that only shouts. I remind you of verse two. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. You who are redeemed by Christ have something to say. Join the choir of the redeemed. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for redeeming us. Your love is the same yesterday, today, and will be the same tomorrow. You are worthy of praise from the redeemed. Lord, help us to make it our singular source of joy on earth. You have to do that in us. So we cry out to you, deliver us, Lord. Deliver us from lesser things, God. And ignite a passion of worship in your people that we say it to the ends of the earth. May we join the mighty anthem of the redeemed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.